Well, good morning. It's good to see you came back after last week. You never know. Let me pray for us again, and then um, we'll jump into 1 Timothy here. Father, thank you that you are gracious to us. We thank you that you give us joy um, in the person of Jesus. And so, Father, I pray that as we look into your word today, Lord, I pray that you would pursue us, that you would be gracious to us, that you would teach us, and that um, you would remind our hearts of truth. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So last Sunday we discussed um, 2 Timothy 2, and we kind of put a pause on a few different passages in there. Um, and uh, as I was um, thinking about this and preparing for this week, one night this, uh, this week I, I woke up in the morning with this like cold sweat that like I had this dream that, that I, had, I had sat down after I taught and I never covered the passages. Can you turn me down? I'm just a little bit too hot. Um, um, I never covered, actually covered the passages that I said we were going to cover. And I like woke up and I, and I, and I panicked and I, I, sat, I sat down in my chair and I was like, oh no, I didn't talk about them. I lied to them. And, and I was really struck with this like overwhelming sorrow that, that I misled, um, misled you and misled the women in our church and didn't care for them because I didn't back up. And, and, and so then I had to figure out what, what am I going to do? And so after communion, I, I tearfully got up and, and apologized and asked for forgiveness. And, and so that was what my week was like. Um, and so, um, so, so to make sure that that doesn't happen, um, actually, we're just going to cover those passages today. We're not actually going to go into chapter 3. Um, and I want to talk in depth and in on those things, the, the, the verses that we put on pause last week. Um, and so as we do that, I want to remind us, oh, there's a new slide up there too. Um, it's so cool. Where's Daniel? There he is. Daniel made that for us. Um, um, yeah, we, we asked if you guys have um, skills and you have art you want to share or different things, whether that's music, whatever that, we want to, we want to empower the body to do that. And so please, uh, please share those things with us. Um, so as we jump into 2 Timothy 2 again, I want to remind us some things we talked about um, last week, that what God is doing through Paul is he's actually laying out his plan for how the church is to be structured. And I want to remind us that these are actually God's words. These are not something that just Paul wrote down. Um, these, are, these are God's words to his people, and God is telling us something about himself and who we are and how we live in his image here together. He's saying something about how we, we mutually complement one another um, by serving and submitting to one another, like we see in the Trinity. And so we're say, we, what we're seeing is that he's saying this is the best way to live life. The problem becomes, just like with anything else, when God calls us to something, our sinful hearts war against it often. We think we know what's best, and we desire something different. We desire a different role, or we, or we lord a position over someone, or, or we feel slighted, or we may feel offended um, by what God calls us to, because the reality is that, that we think our way of life is better. We really think that, that our way of living is better than seeing God's way is actually truth and life. And we do this over and over and over again in our lives with so many areas of life where we find our value in things that, 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 that God doesn't say is valuable to us. He says, how I view you is actually valuable. 
So if you hear anything else today, make sure you hear this. Please hear that God desires for you to find his value and significance in him. He really desires for you to find your value and significance in him. And his way of life is actually life. And it's far greater than any other life that we could dream up for ourselves. And so as we think about that, I want to be reminded that, that he is actually the only one that is good, right, and perfect. He is the designer of life, and he not only knows how it works best because he designed it, but through Jesus, he now offers life again in our brokenness. He offers life outside of our brokenness, and he gives us the power to believe, and he gives us the power to walk in it in the everyday. That's how good God is to us. That's how gracious he is to us. And so as we read First Timothy, and as really kind of a, a precursor to chapter 3, and God's design for his leadership in the church, is his family plan of where the entire church, both male and female, would be equipped and mobilized and for gospel work through the plurality of, of spiritual men who take primary, the primary responsibility for leadership and teaching in his church, please hear that he, this is what he, that he values you outside of those things. When I say this too, I want to also remind us that, that God, as God sets up different roles and different positions for different humans, he's still the head of the church. God is still the head of the church. He's, he's the top of the org chart, if you want to say it that way. Colossians 1.18 says this. It says, He, so Christ, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, that's the Greek word soma there, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So the church is a body that gets its leadership, its nourishment from its head. The church is not just a human organization. It's actually an organism. It's, it, and it's not, it's not a human organism because its head is actually divine. It's the head that gives life, and it's a supernatural type of life. Thus, the ways we think about a church should not be run how human organizations are run. This is not a business. It's not to be run by gifted businessmen who help organize the function of the church. Sadly, much of our church in our country is organized that way. And so much value is actually placed on leadership, is actually affirmed and placed based on competence rather than character. And we're going to talk about that more next week when we talk about the, the roles that, and how we, how we live. Um, so we'll put that on pause for next week. Um, so you just have to keep coming back. That's how it works, right? Um, so, but since the church is actually an organism rather than an organization, then the church should have different type of leadership that would lead, that would govern, that would nurture the body so that the entire body together would actually image God himself and its head, image the head leader, Jesus. And so that's what also means to be part of one body is there's actually equality regardless of the role that I'm given. So a foot is just as important as a hand or an arm or a nose or a piece of hair or whatever that may be. Um, and that each part is important and each part is equally important if we're going to actually completely image a healthy body and making, so if we're missing some of these parts, we can't actually image a healthy body and so we need them together and so each part is equally valuable. The problem becomes that often in our brokenness, we over-accent or over-value and make one part or one function more important than another. 
I think this, as I was thinking about that this week, this, it reminded me of when I used to hang out in the gym, um, and I did do that at one point in my life. Um, I was actually in shape, um, and I would see these guys come in, and they were a little bit bigger than I was, um, but they would come in, and they would work out every day, and they had these like big chests and arms and everything, and then you look down, and their legs were like this big around. I don't know if you've ever seen that. I'm, I'm sure you have, right? And these guys are like all pumped up, and then they're like, dude, those things aren't even going to hold you up. Right, like um, we do this all the time with our physical bodies, and in our in our culture, we have we have certain body parts that that we value over other body parts, right? And we do this in organizations as well. There's certain roles that that we value over other roles, rather than looking at it as a whole. And so it's no wonder that we actually struggle with this in the church and within our own hearts as we think about this. And so as we continue to, in this conversation of how the church actually lives a gospel-centered life and the function that, that God gives for men and women, I want to remind us of what Revelations 1, 5 uh, through 6 says. It says this, He loves us and has freed us by our, from our sins by His blood. So we no longer live under that role. He's freed us and made us a kingdom, priest to God and and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. First Peter two nine says the same thing. It says you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, that you may declare the wondrous deeds of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The good news is that you and I are chosen priests, equally called, equally loved, equally valued, equal access to God all members of the same body with one singular purpose to bring glory to Jesus by reflecting him together within the roles and functions that he's designed for us. And so you and I now are part of that priesthood kingdom. And so if you go back to 2 Timothy, um, if you want, we'll start there. Now, if you remember, 2 Timothy really starts with, with the discussion about, about what men, 2 Timothy 2 starts the discussion with about what men and women are to be known for. And those are things that are often contrary to what men are usually known for in most of our world and most of our culture. If you missed that last week, you can go back and listen to that podcast. We also covered verse 15. We talked about the curse of the pain of childbearing. That is not God's final words to women. This is actually words of hope being spoken into the brokenness of the many areas of childbearing in life. And so if you can go back and listen to those things, which really brings us to the verses that we, that we put a pin in last week. And I want to spend some time here and give some clarity on these verses because often as we read them, um, they bring up all kinds of emotions. They've been ris- misread and they've been misused by both men and women in our culture and in our churches. And I want to talk about three words um, that can be misunderstood often and misused. The words quiet or silence, the word teach, and the word authority. And I'm going to talk about them separately, but as we talk about them separately, please hear that they're actually intertwined and form one thought. Let me read it, and then we'll, we'll go from there. 2 Timothy 2, verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve... And Eve was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So I know that's like a bunch of stuff in your heads is already rolling around, so let's just like slowly spin this out. All right, so let's start with the very first one in verse 11. Um, Let a woman learn quietly or in, in silence. 
And before I go on, um, I want to say that this doesn't mean that women can't speak or have a voice in the church. If you spent any time around here, you know that we don't believe that. It's obvious that when we ask questions that anyone can answer and anyone can share and allow to share what they're learning and teach us and we learn from each other as we're sharing in that. We also have women and men equally share in hosting and equally share in, in leading worship. And, and even as we gather and we think about within our missional communities, which is really where a lot of the church takes, life takes place and where a lot of teaching takes place, men and women are equally sharing in those roles. We value the voice of women, and we know that if we are not listening to them, then we're actually missing the way that God designed us to live, as complementing one another. So what is God saying here? What is he saying to us? Well, if we look at the other verses, it will give us some context. I want to look at verse um, 2 and verse 12, because you see that same word actually used here. And if we go to verse 2, I think this is helpful. It sets kind of the tone for this word. And remember, verse 2 is in, in the context of prayer. It says this, that we may may lead a peaceful and quiet life. So it says, pray that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. We talked about this verse last week, but this verse is talking about the entire church, men and women, and how they're to live out in a way that affirms and honors the leadership that God has placed over them. So silence here does not refer to absolute silence or quiet or just holding one's tongue. It it's actually refers to a peaceful life um, in, in one that it's displaying this idea of not stirring up trouble, um, which is actually the opposite of being peaceful. It's this idea that, that men and women would actually make it easy and make it a joy for those who are, are called to lead them to lead. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't have a difference of opinion or you can't question someone or, you, or ask about a process. Rather, that it will be done in a manner that is honoring, that's open to hearing, that's open to listening to each other. It's, it's done without a prideful attitude. It doesn't say, if it's not done this way, then I'm going to sulk or I'm going to go home. It doesn't undermine. It, it's not quick to point out or look for failures after you've... You've said your piece and it doesn't go that way. It's, it's done in a manner that is honoring to the leadership that God has put over top of us. And this is obvious if you look at verse 12, where this word is used again. And Paul uses it in kind of this contrasting form here. He says this, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over men, um, but literally to, to be silent. In other words, this quiet is the opposite of exercising authority over men. Don't exercise authority. Instead, be silent. So the kind of, this is a kind of silence that actually respects and honors the leadership of men that God has called to oversee the church. Verse, says in, verse 11 uh, says, in quietness and submissiveness. And then in verse 12, it says, the quietness is the opposite of the authority of men. So the point is, it's not whether a woman is saying or saying something or, or saying nothing. It's whether she is submissive to the authority that God has placed over her and, and other men as well to oversee the church. So quietness means it's been speaking in a way that doesn't compromise that authority. It means speaking in a way that doesn't compromise that authority. So then it kind of brings us to another word here. What, what does it mean to teach? And these are just going to kind of build off of each other. And now this has been a subject of in many, many books or many, many people have written or spent hours talking about teaching. What does it mean to teaching? And, and as you look through, most of those questions really arise to, to where, how, and with who 
Basically, these questions boil down to how extensive is God's prohibition when he says, I do not permit a woman to teach? Well, if you look at other places where God teaches through Paul and where God teaches through other people who wrote scripture, we'll find many examples of actually women teaching. And actually in in 2 Timothy 2, Paul even, actually in 2 Timothy, Paul calls Timothy to remember who he learned the gospel from. And if you look back in Acts, if you look at Acts 16, you'll find out that it was actually Timothy learned from two women. He learned from his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois because his father was an unbelieving Gentile man. And so he learned the gospel. He learned how to follow God's ways from two women. And Paul tells him, remember where you learned it from. In other places in Acts 18, we see that um, husband and wife, uh, Priscilla and Aquila, they, they hear Apollo's teaching, and they go to him, and they both take him aside, and they say it's this, they expounded to him the ways of God more accurately. So both man and woman are teaching Apollos who was, who was teaching something incorrectly. In Titus, again, we see the call for, for older women to teach younger women. And just a side note here, that's, that's not just referring to age. It's not, that's not, not just an age thing. It's a call to women who actually understand the gospel and how that gospel would affect all areas of life, those who are mature in it, those who are actually gospel fluent, to teach those who are not yet gospel fluent, those who don't understand the gospel and how to live out a gospel-centered life. It's a gospel maturity that denotes age, um, denotes older, not, not age. So there's many examples that we could get into um, and interpret what it means to teach, but I think letting that word teach be the driving force in how we, how we understand or, or interpret that is not not the only way to do that. I think the wisest way to do that is let the next phrase in this, in, this, in this passage guide us. And the next phrase is this, or exercise authority over men. And so the teaching here that, that God is talking about is the kind of teaching that somehow relates to authority. Where we're teaching, um, we're teaching and exercising authority go together hand in hand. And so what we need to do then is look at Look at the culture and the context we live and ask the question, what are the areas where teaching implies or is equated with authority? And those are the ones where God says women should not teach. Which begs the next question, what does authority mean? Well, if we go on from these verses in chapter 3, we'll see that the rest of the book actually talks about um, elders and their two basic responsibilities that they were to govern and they were to teach. You can see this in the qualifications that we'll talk about next week in 1 through 7. Um, But also in 5.17, he says this, Let the elders who rule or govern be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and in teaching. If you look back in the book of Acts, um, in Acts, Acts chapter 20, we'll see that in the church in Ephesus, they're installing elders, and they're charged to oversee and feed the flock. Basically, teach the family of God God's words. And so when Paul puts those two things together and says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority, the most natural sense is that I don't permit a woman to assume the office of an elder in a church. And so this officer of of an elder is reserved for men. As we think about authority and what it looks like from a gospel perspective, I want to remind us of what authority actually looks like. It's actually humble service. Luke 22 says this, Let the greatest among you become the youngest and the leader as one who serves. 
It says, serve from the bottom. Jesus didn't, Jesus didn't just declare this and teach us with the south, but he also demonstrated this. Jesus says, Jesus goes to the cross. He becomes the ultimate servant for all humans. Jesus, the one with, with the ultimate authority, the one who has all authority in heaven and in earth, took on the role of a servant so that you and I might be served and might learn the ways of God. Peter tells us the same thing in 1 Peter um, 5.3, and he's talking to elders here, and he says, Do not domineer over those in your charge, but be examples to the flock. Paul also talks about himself in 2 Corinthians and said God's placed him as an elder in the church for the building up of the gospel. And if you look at Paul's life, it's marked with both teaching and actually living out among people, serving them as an example of what it looks like to image God. And so elder authority is actually servant authority. Elder leadership is actually servant leadership. It's why teaching is at the heart of this calling. That elder authority would lead by teaching, declaring, and demonstrating the gospel. Unfortunately, what has happened in our culture and in our, in our, in our country is that often churches have placed this role of leadership just on someone who can actually teach the word of God. They can preach well, but they don't lead from the place of a servant. And the problem is that not only is this hypocrisy while we're saying something, but we're not living it, but it over-accents the role of preaching or teaching, which really leads to a very subtle form of authoritarianism. It leads to to narcissism actually leading um, to use coercion or political maneuvering to accomplish something rather than actually serving people in the midst. It's really, it's pride masked in biblical language and biblical desires and biblical results. And it's so easy for a church to fall into. And I've seen it over and over and over and over again. Churches blinded by the lies. Well, he's just that way. Or he's a little rough around the edges. Or he may be harsh, but, but the church is really growing on Sunday mornings. Did you hear him preach? Instead of actually calling leaders to live gospel, live centered lives, we value teaching over humility. And we value teaching over gospel character. And it's so destructive. It's so destructive. And it accents man's God, glory over God's glory. And I, I'm sure that, that if we went around the room, many of you have seen the fallout from this. There's many people probably in here and in our lives and, and that we know that, that that's even part of our story. I've been a part of it. It's part of my story. And it's not only sad, but can I say it breaks the heart of God because it's not how he desires his kids to be cared for. It's not how he desires his kids to be cared for. And so I say these things just so that, that you would be, not just so that you'd be aware of them, but so that you would watch out for them in the life of this church. That you would watch out for this in the life of any other elder that God calls to lead in this church. We are just as vulnerable to fall into this trap. And we need to be cared for just the same way that we need to care for you. And if you see anything other than the heart of servant leadership, you need to confront us about it. You need to come and talk to us about it. Being quiet doesn't mean that you don't call us back to the gospel. Being quiet actually means disobedience in that case. Scripture is clear on the priesthood of all believers. We talked about that. Every Christian is a minister. The word minister does not define my pastoral role or an elder role in church. It defines my function and it defines your function as well. Ephesians 4 says that that elders exist to equip the saints 
for the work of ministry. So my role or any other elder role is to equip you. You are all ministers. You are all priests. And all together we are called to do the work of the gospel. Men and women leading together, working together, complementing one another so that God's image will be seen in the world around us. So authority and submission. I want to define them like this. And I'm just going to quote Piper because he makes things better than I do. Um, And so if you can throw those on the screen. Authority and submission can be defined by this. Authority refers to the defined calling of spiritual gifted men to take primary responsibilities as elders for Christ-like servant leadership and teaching in the church. So Christ-like servant leadership and teaching in the church. And submission refers to the divine calling of the rest of the church, both men and women, to honor and affirm the, the leadership of elders and to be equipped by it for the hundreds and hundreds of various ministries available to men and women in the service of Christ. This is the context and this is the heart of these verses on quietness. That a woman is called to lead in a way that is within this headship structure that God has laid out. Not, in, not, in, not to usurp leadership of men, but that, they, but that men, everyone would be equipped and everyone would be sent out into God's mission. God's plan for the entire church, I've said this before and I'm going to say it again, is that male and female will be equipped and mobilized for gospel work through the leadership of spiritual men who take responsibility to teach and to guide and to oversee the church. Which really brings us to verse 13 and 14, where we see God give two reasons why he said men, not women, should bear the primary responsibility for leading and teaching the church. It says this in verse 13, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So the first reason, there's two reasons here. The first reason we see here is at the very beginning of time, verse 13, Adam was formed first, then Eve. So God is saying, there's something that I set up at the very beginning of creation. God created man first. He put him in the garden. He gave him responsibility over the garden and over the moral pattern of life in the garden. And then he created woman to be his partner to help him carry out that responsibility into action. It's this idea that, that headship that God made man first to lead as the head. Let me be clear here. At the very beginning, that call to lead was, was one where, where man was designed to lead by serving and by sacrificing. And not one that where they were demanded to be served. They were to lead by serving and sacrificing. We see this from the very beginning, where actually even where a woman is created. In Genesis 2.21, we see that a man sacrifices a rib for her. She was taken out of man. He sacrifices so that she might have life. Jesus says the same thing in Luke 22. He says the greatest men are those who serve and sacrifice. And then Jesus goes on and makes the ultimate sacrifice by laying down his life so that you and I might have life. And he now becomes the new head of mankind. So then when we submit to his leadership, we now fall under his reign and under his rule as a family, and he restores us back into the image of what headship looks like pre-fall state in the garden. In other words, when Paul teaches here that men should bear the primary responsibility for governing and teaching the church, he's not basing it on some cultural um, temporary solution, 
but something that's woven into the fabric of manhood and woman by the virtue of creation at the very beginning of time. He's not doing it on the basis of sin, but on the basis of how God wanted it before there was any sin. And it was good for his people, and it was good for men, and it was good for women. Which leads us to the second reason here for why men are to fill this role of eldership in the family. And verse 14 says this, and this one is a little bit pricklier. Um, Maybe that's lightly said. Um, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now many have taken this verse wrong. And they've taken it to mean that women are more vulnerable to deception. That they're weaker and they allow emotions to cloud their decisions and therefore they should not be given any responsibility for leading or teaching in the church. They've used it really to be a blame game. It was the woman's fault. And can I say, not much has changed. If you go back to Genesis 3, after the fall, do you remember what happens as God pursues them and comes to them? Adam starts the blame game. He throws Eve under the bus. It was the woman you gave me, which she quickly learns from, and she throws the snake under the bus. It was the snake's fault. And humans since that time have been doing the same thing, blaming someone else rather than taking responsibility. And we've been taught this from the headship of Adam. It started with man. Just a side note here, that that sin, um, that, that, was, that sin is taught. It's why there's a, there's a call for, for godly men to lead the church as the head of the church. So it would be important what we're teaching, what is passed down. That we don't, we don't teach wrong things and pass sin down. It's not that elders have to be perfect. Only Jesus is perfect, we know that. But rather that they would humbly serve by teaching and they would be quick um, to repent and show their need of Jesus. They would, they would, they would where they're out of line with the gospel, instead of playing the blame game, they would be quick to repent and lead people in a new way. That's what it really means to be the gospel, where we, we see there were people of need and that we repent of those things and we ask God to help us walk out in a new way. So be clear here, the blame game is not what these verses are talking about. I want to say that's a lazy, incorrect interpretation. To just say women are more vulnerable uh, or deception or emotionally they're a weaker vessel, therefore they shouldn't give, be given responsibility to teach. That is not at all what this is saying. And ladies, I know for many of you, you've probably heard that in your past. Whether it has been applied or, or, or spoken completely to you, or you've taken it on for yourself because you've seen it, and it may have deeply wounded you. It may have caused much pain in your heart. It may have even warped your view of God. And I'm sure that you still feel the effects and the emotions of that today, even as we discuss this passage. This lie and this blame has been thrown your way and has has led to so many broken things, even in our culture. And women have been often been still devalued and mistreated because of this. It has led to overvaluing of women as a sexual object. It's why women get paid less in the workplace, I want to I say. It's why, it's why often women's voices are not heard as loud as men. It's why women are often seen as lesser. It's led to domineering behavior in men. It, we could go on. It's, it's just so rampant in so many areas of society. And it all started with the fall and man blaming woman. And it's been happening ever since. It's been going on 
for years upon years. And I want to say often, men and women, we don't even realize it because it's become the norm of life. And it's become, it's, it's in every areas of life where we've blamed and men, we've, we've blamed them rather than served them. We need to take responsibility for that. I want to. I would say this. This also has this blame game is so rampant in our culture. Is that us men? We've taught you women to blame. I think it's part of why the feminist movement has really flipped the table and over-accented men, women, and looked down on men now. Women use blame. Women don't take responsibility for their actions, and you not only blame men, but you often blame yourself, and you often blame God. And it leads to all kinds of brokenness in every relationship, in every part of life. And I want to say that not only is it wrong, it's not the way that God designed it. And as one of the heads of this family, on the behalf of men, I think we need to ask for your forgiveness. I'm sorry for blaming you rather than taking responsibility. I'm sorry for the ways that that we men have taught you and continued to lie that women are weaker because you're different and because you're created different than you and me, than I am. Men, we have led to so much pain and we need to own that. And women, we need to ask for your forgiveness. The sad news is we're going to continue to fail you. We're going to blame you again. You're going to learn from that and you're going to blame us. And we need more grace and more forgiveness. And the good news is that Jesus will never blame you or never fail you. He's a better head who instead of blaming you, took on your blame. He bore your sin and your shame and blame on the cross. And you and I now to get to live a new life in light of that headship. And we get to trust that he is caring for you despite the headship that is placed in your life. And I want to be real clear here that the reality is that that men are weaker in some ways and women are weaker in some other ways. Women are smarter in some ways and men are smarter in other ways. Neither sex is superior and both are vulnerable to deception. Being created equally in the image of God means that so this so-called weakness, if we add like a weakness and strength column for manhood and womanhood, when we get to the bottom, we all them add up, the value is going to be exactly the same for each of them. God intends them to perfectly complement each other so that when life is considered, and I don't just think men, I'm not just talking about married life, life in community, the so-called weaknesses of manhood and the so-called weaknesses of womanhood don't make a whole weaker, but actually stronger when we work together and we actually, we actually value them. And I want to say it's wrong and dangerous to put negative values on the so-called weaknesses of each of us. Because the truth is that God has intended for all of us in the weakness, the characteristics, the weakness, the weakest characters, the characteristics that belong to man that, that would call, for, call forth the highlights of women's strengths. And God intends for all the weakness and characteristics that belong to women to call forth and highlight the strengths in men. Boasting in either as superior is foolishness. Both are equal and both are in need of each other that we would live a life where we would image God properly. Which raises the question, if that's the wrong interpretation, what does it actually mean? All right, we're getting there. I wanted to make sure we got that first, though. 
Um, and, and we'll build off of this first reason, um, because the created order of headship of creating man first. The second reason is saying that, that God's order of leadership, when God's order of leadership is abandoned, it brings brokenness and damage and ruin. And where do I get that from? Well, if you turn to Genesis 3, and you look at the, the account that the Spirit is actually flashing back for us here in, in 1 Timothy 2, you'll see this in verse 1 in Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more subtle than any other creature that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, and this has significance, that the serpent spoke to the woman. It wasn't like she was all by herself just walking around the garden and Adam was not with her. And how do we know that? If we look at verse 6, it says this. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from it the fruit and ate it. And she gave also her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. So she doesn't have to go around and and look for him. It doesn't say, like, she found this thing and said, Hey, why don't you try this? And he, like, unknowingly takes a bite. It moves directly from the words of temptation to the act of eating. And it says, the man was with her. So by the time we get to verse 17, where God has given out consequences for their action, God says this to Adam. He says, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I command you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. Do you hear the words here? Listen to the voice of your wife. There's no record in chapter 3 that she actually said anything to Adam directly. But if he was there in verse 6, we know that Adam was there. He was listening to the interchange with the serpent and he was falling in line with her. By coming to Eve and Adam listening to her voice, what Satan was doing was he's actually undermining the created order that God God had ordained for the good of the family. And he deliberately defiled it by ignoring the man and taking up his dealings with the woman by speaking to her directly. Satan puts her in the position of a spokesperson and the leader and defender of the family. And at the fall, Adam fails to lead spiritually and protect his wife. And the reason why the serpent goes to Eve was not because she was weaker or because she would be more easily receive his lies. The serpent going to Eve is him undermining God's authority and God's created order. He's undermining God by, by thwarting the authority that he's placed in Adam. And he's trying to undermine God's structure. That's why this reason is given in the context of 1 Timothy 2.12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. God is saying there's an order of male leadership that I set up in the garden with my redeemed and restored family. He's saying I'm reestablishing that created leadership and the voice that was abandoned at the fall so that, that both men and women are cared for and avoid destruction within the church and within my family. God is saying, what was lost at the fall, I'm putting back into proper order so that when men take the role of elders who bear primary responsibility and leadership for the church, they're setting this back up again where they would serve and we see this, they would, see, they would serve and they would see Christ as the ultimate authority. And he's saying to men, make sure that you watch out and don't give away your role like Adam did. And he's saying to women, be careful not to speak in a way that compromises that authority. 
He's saying men and women work together in these roles so that God has placed you in them and that you value them equally so that what would happen at the fall doesn't happen in the life of the church and doesn't lead to more destruction. The reality is that Satan is going to continue to keep doing this. This is what his pattern has been since the beginning of the time we see him enter the story. He continually undermines God's authority. It's why he was kicked out of heaven. And he loves to break up and cause humans to question the good that God has designed. And the many lies that he has told still undermine and still reside in our minds and in our hearts and in our culture. The good news is, though, that Jesus has actually defeated Satan. On the cross and at the resurrection, there's a day that's coming when Jesus will be completely crush his head. His authority and his word in this world will be no more, and God will reestablish the order of headship that God always intended us to have. And until that day comes, as his people, as his church, God is calling us to live in a way where we would actually... Um, actually image that priest's false state again, where, where he would empower men through his spirit to humbly lead as equal image bearers, not as superior or as better, but just as a different role. And he would affirm that they would affirm and value all members of God's family, both men and women. That neither sex would be belittled or neither sex would be accented or seen as superior. And men and women would work together, complementing one another in God's kingdom work that he's called us into. So that we would live a life of restoration to the world around us. Can I say we live in a city that has no idea what restoration actually looks like. And the restoration picture that they have in their mind is weak. And it's, not, it's, it's foolish. And it doesn't hold water. God has called us as a family to live different than that. To live a life of restoration where the world around us would would see that and see him and see his glory rather than us holding something as authority or, or, or valuing something more than what it needs to be. And so as we continue on in this passage um, in the next few weeks, we're going to talk more about what that humble leadership looks like and how we as the church interact with one another. And these things that we talk about are things that, that the whole church is called to, not just the leaders. I think that's another lie that has often happened when we think about these things, that, oh, this leader is the only one that's supposed to live that way. Many churches just pay someone to do the work that they're called to do as a church. And that's not the role of an elder, and that's not the role of a pastor in God's word. God's word is that elders, the male leadership would actually equip and lead and care and govern and, and, and submit to one another and, and love one another and pursue people the way God pursues us. That we would be gracious to one another. That we would be people that listen to one another. That, that we would, in all in, in the, the, the vision of seeing God's glory grow bigger. So we're going to talk more and more about that. But please hear as, as we go through these things that, that God values each one of you. Regardless of what sex you were born. You're equally valued. You're equally loved. And God calls us to image him together so that our strengths would, would compensate for each other's weaknesses so that he would be seen in this world. Our Father, I thank you that um, we get to look into your word today. 
Lord, I pray that you would be gracious to us as we process this. Lord, I pray that um, that that anything that I may have said um, that that maybe didn't come across straight, that you would clear those things up in people's hearts. Lord, I pray that your spirit would guide us. Lord, I pray that as a family, we would be a different type of family that actually images you properly to the world. Lord, I, I think even in our brokenness, we, we don't even know what that means at times. And Lord, we need you to teach us and to equip us and to help us lead each other. And so, Father, I pray for, um, I pray for myself, I pray for Ryan, I pray for any other that you would call to lead in this church. I um, pray that you would give us a humble uh, spirit of, of, of love and care, the way that you love and care us, and that we would lead from that position. Lord, I pray for the women in this church that, that, that may um, have felt um, they were degraded in the past or that they weren't as valuable as men because of the roles. Lord, I pray that that lie would be dismissed from their hearts. Lord, I pray that we would not fall into the blame game anymore. That we would not be people that quickly blame, but that we be people that quickly take responsibility and reveal our need of Jesus. Lord, we're thankful that we get to confess and that as we confess, you get bigger because your work on the cross is even more needed. And so, Father, we thank you that we get to do that, that we get to image you well together. Lord, I pray as we go to communion that you would remind us of that, that you are the one that actually completely took on the role of a servant so that we might have life. Lord, I pray that as we we live this life in the city, that you would give us hope and joy and peace um, and, and patience with one another. And pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.